Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Morning, morning, Springs Church. Good to see everybody. Hi, honey. I know what everyone's thinking. They're thinking, Pastor Michael, you are freaking us out. You cut the hair, then you shave the beard. What is going on? Well, my little baby girl doesn't like to cuddle against the beard, so I shaved it off last night thinking, now she'll give me some cuddles. And then I came into the room, and I put out my big arms, and daily daddy's here. And then she didn't recognize me, so she just started crying <laughs> uncontrollably. And I just kept on saying, oh, I can't win. So I got a feeling it's going to be like that with her for the rest of her life. But, but it's all good. It's all good. You ready to get in the word this morning? All right, we're going to go back into our series on the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. And today we're going to talk about fitting your feet with the readiness that comes with the shoes of the gospel. We're going to talk about what you do with your feet. Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 10 through 18, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the word together. All right, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Well, Father, we just commit this time to you, Lord, and we commit this word Lord, you have been downloading things to me all week long, and I've been writing them and preparing them, but most of all, I've been dealing with them in my own heart, and this is my own journey that I want to share this morning. And God, what you have been doing has been so profound, it's been so amazing, but to be able to convey it in words is almost impossible. So I pray today, Lord, you would take the little bit of scraps, the the five loaves, the two fishes of the preparation and the study and getting things together and praying, you would take that little bit and you would multiply it today. And Holy Spirit, you would come upon this and you would begin to bear witness to the truth to every heart. You would apply it the way it needs to be applied for each one of us. And in your grace, you would bring greater measures of freedom, greater measures of liberty, greater measures of life than we have ever known before. God, we commit it to you now, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
Now, I want us to remember, as we're getting more and more into this series, that the Bible actually commands us to put on the full armor of God. Notice the Bible doesn't say, go and get the armor, but the Bible says, put it on, which means all these incredible weapons and all these incredible tools in Christ, we already have them. We're not trying to earn them. We're not trying to make them. They have been given to us as a free gift. But the Bible says you have to put them on. In fact, the fact that the Bible actually commands believers to put on the armor is revealing to us that most Christians, listen to this, most Christians aren't wearing it. They have it, but they're not wearing it. And Satan is running ravage over their lives. He's, he's destroying their minds. He's destroying their hearts. He's destroying their emotions. He's destroying their relationships. He's destroying their friendships. He's destroying their marriages, their families. He's, he's destroying whole churches. That word and those words, put it on, means that we need to be Intentional. There is an intentionality that we have to have as believers of taking the gospel. And then listen to this. We have to take the gospel and we have to apply it to our lives if it's going to bear the type of fruit that we're all hoping for. It's not enough to come here on a Sunday morning every Sunday and just hear Pastor Michael preach on the gospel. It's not enough to go home and just read the gospel. We actually have to do something with it. In fact, we're going to talk about that a little bit more as I get further into the sermon. But, but before I do, I'm just going to kind of circle back just for a second and just share with you a little bit of what I did this last week. I, I spent some time this last week looking at some YouTube clips and kind of strolling down memory lane. I was watching some skateboard videos on YouTube of some of my old friends, and it got me reminiscing back to my Jersey days because I spent a lot of my formative years actually just all my time really at a local skateboard shop called Small Empire. And every time the skateboard shop would close, there'd be a crew of us that would go out and we would go skateboarding at night. And we would hang out at locked up high schools with all types of ledges or at uh, abandoned parking lots at different strip malls. And we'd sit on the back of cars and we'd listen to music and we'd skate. And every once in a while, there was a kid that would come out, one of our friends, one of our crew, Tim O'Connor. And when Tim came and he skateboarded and he did tricks, well, he was different than everybody else. He had the ability, and I'm not kidding, he had the ability to like defy gravity, to defy physics. He didn't just jump over the fire hydrant. He didn't just jump over the abandoned couch that we found in the dumpster. No, no, no. When Tim did something, he floated. He, he, he would fly is the best way that I can actually describe it. I remember there was a day that Tim and I were skating a mini ramp with each other. And this was right about the time he was about 18 years old and he was about to go pro on this company called Zoo York. And we're skating this ramp together. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is exactly what I'm thinking. I'm thinking this guy is not that good. He's, he's, not, he's not doing better tricks or more technical tricks than I'm doing. I, I could do a frontside air over the coping. But this was the difference. When Tim did it, he was able to like control time. He'd come out over the ramp and then he'd just stop. Like he didn't have to come down. And he would choose. He would choose when he was going to enter back in. That's how he skated. In fact, he was so good that when he did ollies, which just meant that you jump up in the air with the board attached to your feet. 
because he was able to like defy gravity, defy physics, because he was able to fly, he had all this time that when he would jump up in the air with the skateboard, that he would actually turn it. He would shift it sideways where he put his left foot kind of this way, his right foot this way, and he'd do what we call a shifty, just so he looked that much more stylish for the photo as he kind of put out his hands. And then, and then because he's flying, because he's floating, because he could defy gravity, He'd pull it all the way back and kind of straighten it out before he landed on the ground and just rolled away. It was like watching the Michael Jordan of skateboarding. In fact, I was watching, what's it called, Space Jam, the original one just this last week. It was, it was on Amazon Prime. I watched it with my kids. We were sitting, we were watching it. And I forgot there's like 10 minutes of just a montage of Michael Jordan on the court. And this dude, when you watch this guy, I forgot how good he was. He could jump from anywhere, anywhere, and like slam it. He would dunk it. He'd jump over people's heads. He would jump off the foul lines. He'd jump everywhere. He could float. He could fly. It was like, it was like watching him, and then you translate that to skateboarding, and that was like Tim O'Connor. In fact, I have a few pictures of Tim uh, just so you get an idea, let me, let, it, let me throw them up on the screen. This is the way he would jump over things. Yeah! His feet all kind of tucked behind him. Every, here, show the next one when he's in SF. This is Tim kind of hitting a bump in San Francisco. Just flying, just flying. And, and then here's the one. He was 18 years old. He just went pro. And I remember I, I saw this article when I was a kid. We were going through it. He showed me the article. This is him actually hitting a bump out in New Jersey where we all skateboarded. But when Tim did it, like I said, it's like he could fly. You ever see an athlete like that before? You ever see somebody who has the ability to do something that normal athletes just cannot do? They can bend gravity to make it do what they want? A lot of people call it athleticism. We use that as a term to describe somebody who can rise above gravity, they can rise above the physics of this world, and they could do things that most of us just cannot do. Doesn't matter if we train our whole lives, ain't gonna happen. And as I'm thinking about this and I'm reading through Ephesians right here in chapter six, I came to verse 15 again, and I wanna read it with you one more time. It says, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now that word readiness in the original Greek means a fitness in the Christian character. It means almost the exact same thing when we say that somebody has athleticism. It is a Christian character, get this, with spiritual athleticism, which means that this believer is not held down and he is not held back by the trials or the things that other believers are held down or held back by. They have a lightness about them. They have a sure-footedness about them. In fact, let me read verse 15 to you one more time and use a few words that try to describe and flush out that idea of readiness. Let me put it, actually, it's not on the screen. Let me just read it to you, ready? And with your feet fitted with the lightness, the sure-footedness, the buoyancy that comes from the gospel of peace. Okay, with all that said and kind of just laying a foundation, I want to begin to try to build on that. And I want to ask the question, where does this type of spiritual athleticism, this lightness, this buoyancy to be able to defy the gravity and the boundaries of life as Christians, where does that come from? 
I want that. When I read through the book of Acts and I see Paul and Silas being put into a prison after their backs have been beaten and now they're in stocks, the normal Christian, listen to me, the normal Christian would be bound by those types of circumstances. They would sit there and they would murmur and they would complain. All the hope in their heart would be drained. They would have no faith left. The circumstances, the trial, the situation would have put a cap on where they could go. And yet Paul and Silas had this type of spiritual athleticism. They had this type of joy. They had this lightness, this buoyancy that even after being beaten, even after being put in stocks, even after being in prison, they were able to rise above the gravity of the situation. They began singing at the midnight hour. They're worshiping God. Most of us can't worship God with all the freedoms that we enjoy and a full worship band leading us in. They're worshiping God after being beaten and put into stocks. They were able to rise above things that most Christians cannot rise above. In fact, they were so spiritually athletic, listen to this, that God shows up, sends an earthquake, breaks off every one of their chains, opens up the prison door. Now, what would normal Christians do? Oh, thank God, you finally heard my prayer. And we would have run out of there, hightailing it as fast as we possibly can, right? But not Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are rising above the gravity of the situation. They're rising above the trial. They're rising above the fear. They're rising above the anxiousness. They're rising above their own murmuring and their complaining. They're rising above it with this spiritual athleticism. They're rising above it with this buoyancy of spirit where they don't even leave. They're sitting there because they feel a prompting from the spirit of God that there's kingdom work that needs to be done. And they get this, and then they leave the, the, the jailer and his whole family to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want to live like that as a believer. I want to live like that as a Christian, especially in the time that we're living in right now. And the question then becomes, where does that lightness, where does that athleticism, that, that fitness actually come from, Pastor Michael? And the Bible tells us, you want to know where it comes from? And I want you to get this. You can write this down. It comes from joy. Joy. Actually, it comes from putting on the gospel of peace. But the natural reaction to putting on the, gas, the gospel of peace is a heart and a soul that is filled with joy. It's filled with joy. And this joy gives this Christian a spiritual athleticism like we're talking about, a buoyancy in his or her step where the trials and the duties... All oh, the Christian duties, how hard it is to read the word, how hard it is to pray, how hard, I hear people all the time, I can't intercede. Oh, when you got joy, and I mean real joy, these Christian duties, they don't weigh you down anymore. You rise above, you love to do it. The temptations don't have the weight that they used to have on your life. The sin that used to hold you, oh, when you got real Christian joy, sin cannot weigh you down anymore. In fact, let me put this definition up on the screen, a definition that most people don't think about when they think about joy, but joy is the ability to move on when everybody else is weighted down. That's what it is. Joy gives the Christian a lightness, an agility, an ability to defy the emotional, mental gravity. Joy gives the Christian a spiritual 
athleticism. Now, I alluded to this earlier as we were getting into it together, but this type of joy, this type of lightness, it only comes as you put on the gospel of peace. It's not enough to just have the gospel of peace. You got to put it on. And this is where Christians get really messed up because there's this idea. If I just come to church every single Sunday and I hear the gospel over and over and over again, I'm reminded of it. I go home and I read about it. I get into a Bible study and I talk about it and I agree with it. Then that's going to be enough for me to be able to live the type of life that the heroes of faith lived in Hebrews chapter 11. And listen to me, and nothing further could be from the truth. It's not enough just to hear the gospel. It's not enough just to agree with the gospel. You have to do something with it. James says it like this. Faith without works is dead. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. The gospel, it doesn't work unless we actually apply it, unless we put it on. And see, we put on the gospel piece, I want you to get this, by using the gospel, not just against the devil, which we've talked about in earlier sermons on this series. We talked about using the gospel against the lies of accusation and the lies of temptation. We talked about using the gospel against the vain imaginations that the enemy attacks us with. We talked about the breastplate of righteousness, right? Where we feel condemned. We use the gospel against the devil, but listen to me, to truly put the gospel on, you also have to use the gospel on yourself. It's got to go on the devil. And listen to me, it's got to go on you. Notice that Paul calls it what? He calls it the gospel of peace in Ephesians chapter 6. Now that's interesting. Why is that so interesting? Because the gospel has been referred to so many different ways throughout the centuries of church history. It has been referred to as the gospel of love. The gospel of Faith, the gospel of grace, all true, all real. But Paul chooses not to use any of those terminologies, and he says it has to be the gospel of peace. In other words, Paul is giving us a key here. He is alluding to something. He says, you want to know this type of lightness? You want to know this type of joy? You want to understand the spiritual athleticism that I had when I was sitting in a prison that gave me the ability to rise above the gravity of the circumstances and situations? Do you want to know where that actually comes from? It comes from using the gospel to bring about peace. Well, peace with who? Peace with what? You have to use the gospel, listen to me, to bring peace between you and God. Now, know what you're thinking. There's a lot of people in this room. You're already saying, well, duh. That's like Christianity 101, Pastor Michael. That's the ABCs of Christianity. We all know that we come to the cross sinners and we need to repent. And we all know that Jesus gave his life so that he could be our propitiation, that he would legally and justifiably take our sins on himself and he would receive the punishment for everything we've done wrong, past, present, and future, that there's no anger with God left in our lives, that we've been given his righteousness as a transfer that happened at that cross. We all know this. God's not angry at us anymore. We got that. We, we're walking in that. We get it. Ah, but the gospel needs to deal with more than just God's anger with you to bring about the type of peace, the joy that we're talking about. 
The gospel also has to deal with your anger towards God. Now, I know what you're thinking. There's people in the room, all right, I'm not angry at God. What are you talking about? I'm not angry. Yes, you are. Because the Bible says that in our flesh is a natural enmity and hostility towards God. In fact, let me show you in Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read verse 6 and 7. It says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, this is so important, and if you don't get this, you're not really gonna understand the rest of the message. But the Bible, time and time again, and I don't have time to go through all the scriptures, reveals to us that the natural inclination of the human heart is hatred towards God. Now, when I say that, every one of you think, whoa, that's harsh. That, that, sounds, that sounds harsh. That sounds heavy. Are you telling me, Pastor Michael, that deep down in the core of who I am, I hate God, I'm angry with God? And the reality is, because that's the truth, and the Bible actually bears witness to that, and because the sound of that sounds worse than like any other sin you can ever imagine, that sounds worse than idolatry, doesn't it? To hate God. That sounds worse than gossiping, doesn't it? To hate God. I mean, to be honest, I feel like that's almost on par with like blaspheme of the spirit, right? Like the unpardonable sin. And because we've been taught all our lives that it's so wrong to hate God, and if you hate God, you're like the worst thing in all the earth, we can't look into our hearts honestly because if we did and we saw that hatred, that animosity, that anger there, we would feel a shame unlike anything we've ever experienced as humans. We all come into church and feel a measure of shame. We all come into church and feel a measure of guilt. We shouldn't, but we do. We never feel like we're living up to the standard of what the word is calling us to. I don't pray the way I should. I don't read the way I should. I'm not parenting the way I should. I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough mate. I'm not living my single life the way I should. And we all know that. And there's a measure of shame we all deal with when we come into the house of God. But if you were to look honestly at your heart and you saw at the core of all that you are that you hate God that there's nothing good in you whatsoever in your flesh, well, that's just a cross, listen to me, that is too heavy to carry. That would break us. We would say, I give up, and we'd walk away. Would we not? So this is what we do. We do it subconsciously, but this is what we do. We repress the anger, we repress the hatred, and then we redirect it at other places. So we grow up, and we hate our parents. We grow up and some of us hate the opposite sex and everything that's wrong in the world is because of them. We grow up and we hate a certain denomination at churches. We grow up and some of us even take it so far that we begin to hate another race. But deep down at the core, at the foundation of all of that is really a hatred and an anger towards God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You think, Pastor Michael, why would anybody hate God? Why would I hate God? I don't hate God. Why would I hate God? Well, Matthew chapter 6 actually tells us. Let me read it to you. Chapter 6, verse 24 says this. No one could serve two masters. Either, listen to this, you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Now, don't worry, this is not a sermon on stewardship today. So everyone's, thank God we're, we're through that. In fact, I know that the scripture is speaking about money, but if you pay attention to what the text is actually saying, there is a much more broad and a much more general spiritual principle here. The Bible says this, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, that's the word it uses, and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve two masters, or let me say it like this, you cannot surrender control of your life to two different people. It's not possible. Think all the way back into the garden when Satan came in and came in the shape of a serpent. And he comes to Adam and Eve to tempt them. And what does he say? Do you remember what he said? He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be as God. In other words, listen, this is what he's saying. You don't have to trust God with your life. Which, by the way, is like the hardest thing to do as a human. Forget about religion and morality. Morality is easy. Paul said it. He said, you want to know what morality? I could do morality. Morality is simple. But to trust everything that God says about himself in the word, to believe that he really is our provider, to believe that he really is a God who protects us and takes care of us, that he's a good father, to come into the scriptures and to read things that all things, all things are working together for good, even the bad things that we don't like, that we don't understand, that they have an eternal weight and significance that we don't see on this side of eternity yet. But one day when we're in heaven, God's gonna reveal the master plan, that God has plans for our lives, that he's the one that's ultimately in control. I mean, to believe all of that, and I mean believe it, is humanly impossible. In fact, you can't even do it unless the Holy Spirit enables you to. And Satan comes to Adam and Eve. And what does he do? He's saying, you don't have to walk that hard road of trusting in God. You don't have to believe that he's good like he says he is. He even begins to question God's goodness. Did he really say that you couldn't eat of this tree? He's starting to put doubts in their hearts. He's saying, you don't have to believe God that he'll protect you, he'll provide for you, that everything is the way it should be in this garden. You can be as God. You could be your own master. What is he saying? You could take charge of your life and you can be in control. You don't have to serve him. You could serve yourself. And see, this is what Christians don't understand. Because of the fall of man, because that lie has been sown into all of our hearts, this theological lie. Every single one of us has it. We now subconsciously think that if I could get the right career, if I can have the right figure, if I could get married or have a good, healthy marriage, or I could please these certain people and I could get them to approve of me, or I could break through in this professional field, or I could get this new thing, this new house, or this new car. If I could do these things, I would finally be in control of my life. And when I feel like I'm in control of everything, then I will be happy because I'm my own master and be in charge and in control solidifies that truth. But here's the rub. Some of us find this out quicker than others, but one day you will come to the realization, you ready for this? You'll find out that you can never achieve complete control. <laughs> you can't. 
because obstacles always get in the way of the things that make you feel in control, right? And those obstacles, whether we admit it or not, all come from God. So therefore, at some level or another, whether you're conscious of it or not, you are angry with God. And even though you project the anger on other places and other people, for example, you'll say, well, it was my parents' fault. If they raised me better or they put away enough money for me to go to that Ivory League school, I'd have the job that I want. I'd be in control of my life. I, I, I would, I'd be able to take care of things the way I was hoping. It's their fault, and we project the anger there. Or we say, it's a political party's fault. It's their policies. They've destroyed my business. They've destroyed my life. They're the issue. They're the one to blame, and we project our anger there. Or we say something along the lines, it was the church's fault. They wounded me. They were unhealthy. They didn't take care. I was, I was making progress with God, and now, and now everything has been wrecked. But underneath, we all know it's actually God. And therefore, listen to this, I'm angry with him because he stands between me and the things that make me feel in control. For example, how many of you have ever been put in a hospital because you were sick or you heard the words cancer or you needed a procedure? <laughs> Let me ask a question. How many of you felt in control when you were in that hospital bed? Honestly, nobody, right? Zero, because it's a season when things are out of control. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you into reality just for a second. That's the truth of our whole lives. You're not in control of a single thing. It's only when we end up in the hospital that we get a glimpse into that truth. What did Jesus say? He said, with all your worrying about the future, can you add one cubit of stature to yourself? He said, you know what he said? You can't change this thing. You're not in control. You don't have the control. You think you're in control? Who gives you the next breath to be able to breathe? The hospital reminds you of that, right? Who gives you the arm so that you can go to work? You got no control, none whatsoever. God says, I am God, not you. So what's the answer? How do I deal with this anger so I can know real peace and joy and have this type of spiritual athleticism that enables me to rise above the sin, the trials, the duties that everybody else is weighed down by? Well, the key of it is in the terminology that Paul uses. You have to use the gospel to stop the war. You gotta stop the war. In fact, let's look at a man in the Bible that was constantly at war with God. Look at Jacob. He was a man that wrestled with God his whole life and wrestled with everybody else around him. Why? Because he wanted the blessing. You know what's funny? He already had the blessing. It just didn't come about the way that he thought it should. So he wrestles with God, tries to manipulate God, tries to manipulate everybody else so that he could get what's already been given to him. That's the hilarious part. He wanted to understand it. He wanted it on his own terms, so he felt like his life was in control. He can understand that this is what's gonna happen in my future. I have this much land, and my brother's gonna do this, and I got this birthright, I'll be able to give it. He wanted the control. And he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with God till it got to a point, and this is amazing, where God actually shows up in the flesh. He says, you wanna do this? Because we'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe now. 
and I'll wrestle with you in the flesh. We've been doing it through our relationship, through intimacy, through our spirits, but I'm ready to do it in the flesh. And God literally wrestles with this man all night long. And I could just imagine Jacob. Here he is. This is hilarious. He's trying to pin God down on the ground to be able to get God to give him something that would make him feel like he is in control. And, and I couldn't imagine what it was like to have God in a headlock, even if it was just for a moment. People want to get to heaven. They want to talk to David. They want to talk to Moses. I want to talk to Jacob. I want to talk, what was it like to, you know, do the full elbow drop right on God's head? Like, what? What is this? And the Bible says, halfway through the wrestling, halfway through the night, God finally reaches out and he touches Jacob's hip socket and he wrenches it out of place. And now Jacob is weakened. He can't wrestle the way he was before. And God says, let me go. And what is Jacob's response? No, I will not let you go until you bless me. Notice he doesn't say, I will not stop wrestling. He says, I will not let you go. Look at this. I want to put this up on the screen. I want you to see this. Jacob went from wrestling with God with being at war with him, to clinging to God. He went from, I'm going to put you in a headlock, and I'm going to drop this elbow, to I'm not letting you go. I'm clinging. And I have seen this transition happen in my prayer life over the years. So many times I've gone to prayer just to wrestle with God. I'm using everything I can find in the Bible. I'm trying to use every single trap I could get him in to try to, to get him to do something to get him to work in a certain way that would make me feel in control. And now after 40 years of being on this earth and getting slapped upside the head after one trial, after another, after another, after another, I have finally come to a place, not always, but in measure, where my prayer times aren't wrestling with God anymore, trying to get him to do something that makes me feel like I'm in control. My prayer times are changing to clinging to God and trusting in who he is and his promises, even though my life feels out of control. Do you see the difference? See, if you want to deal with your anger towards God, which we all have, number one, you have to realize that it's real and you have to face it. You have to recognize that the Bible says the natural inclination of every heart is enmity against God. We all have it inside of our flesh. You have to face the fact that you are scared out of your mind to truly surrender to him because you think if you do, he'll destroy your life. He'll take everything away from you. He'll mess it all up. You think of God more as a tyrant than a loving father. And until we could confess that honestly, until we could face it honestly in our hearts and not put the mask up, not say, well, church, I'm not going to be that because if I do that, I feel shame or I feel like it's wrong or I feel like it's the worst sin in the world. Until we could get beyond that and say, no, Pastor Michael, that is the reality. I'm scared out of my mind to surrender everything to God. I'm wrestling with him to get it my way so I feel like I'm in control. I, I, I've been wrestling for healing. I've been wrestling for finances. I've been wrestling for this job. I've been wrestling, whatever it might be. And you're saying, it's got to happen like this. And I have to see God do it like this. Because if I surrender, I don't trust him. I don't believe that he's really my father. Until we face that in our hearts, you can never be truly free of it and be at peace. The war always continues to rage. And then number two, 
You have to put on the gospel. You, you have to use the gospel against your own heart. You have to remind yourself of scriptures like Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 that says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the young Ali. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about it like this. I was trying to figure out a way to describe this and really kind of bring it home, and I felt like I missed it at the first service, so hopefully this goes off better. Imagine you're a rescue worker, EMT, and you work up in the mountains, and you get a call one day that somebody fell off the side of Pikes Peak, and they're injured, and they need help. And you go, and you, you hike all the way up the mountain or drive all the way up, and you find where they fell off, and you see the person in the distance, and you run over to go check on them, and as you do, you can hear them, and they're crying out, help me, help me, and then they see you, and they say, oh, thank God, thank God you came. And as you're helping them, and you're bandaging up all their wounds, and you're getting the splints done, they're saying, my goodness, you're like the most compassionate, loving, kind rescue worker I've ever met in my whole life. Thank God God sent you. And you get them all buttoned up, and you get it down, and you get them into the ambulance. Now imagine the same thing happens two weeks later. You get a call. Somebody falls right at the same point that that other person fell, and now they're lying on the ground, and you run up on the mountain to go get them. And as you're approaching, this time you can hear them, but this time they're not crying out, they're screaming. And where are they screaming? You are the worst rescue worker ever! You are the worst. You are the scum of all the earth. Don't come near me. Don't touch me. In fact, the whole reason this happened is because of your incompetence. If you would have fixed the guardrail, I would not be on the ground where I am. Right? Don't touch me. I don't want you to save me. I'd rather bleed out than you put your hands on me. You come near me, I'm going to bite off your face. (laughs) What would you do? I know what I would do. Right? I call up another rescue worker. I say, this guy's all yours. I do a quick prayer over him. Then I tell him, good luck. Good luck. I hope you were living a good life because God's going to have to rescue you. Because this, right, I would have just left. Now think about this. We have said so much worse to God. We have blamed him for everything that has gone wrong in our lives. We have said, it's you that put me here. You're the problem. Not our sin, not our issues, not the fall of man. It's all God. We have accused him of everything. We have told him to get out of our lives. We have told him, I don't want you to work anymore. How many of you have been in a trial for so long, prayed for so long, you said, God, you make it worse. My kid was coming to the Lord, then he went to that retreat. Now he's all messed up all over again. You make it worse every time you come. We say these things to God. We tell him to get lost. We scream at him with the top of our lungs. And yet the Bible says that he still came and he died for you and for me. See, when you take the gospel and you start applying it to that in your heart, you start realizing that the gospel reveals the love of God. It reveals to us that God is not a tyrant, that God is a loving father. The gospel on the cross, it shows us, it reveals to us that God is so much wiser and loving than we can ever hope or imagine. Even though we don't understand the plan, nobody did. The Old Testament prophets didn't figure it all out. 
Peter didn't understand the cross. He said, you don't have to go this way. Don't go to the cross. Everybody was telling him not to go that way. But the Bible shows us, despite our limited understanding and our wisdom, God is more infinitely wise than we will ever be. And if we can't understand how the circumstances are working together, does not mean that, that he does not have a master plan where he is putting it together the way that he sees fit for your benefit and for his glory. That's what the gospel does. And if we stop just listening to it, and we stop just saying, I agree with that, and we actually apply it, say, no, this is true, it begins to have an effect in our lives. Let me close with this. As I was going through this, and I was studying and putting these notes together, God reminded me of a prayer I once prayed all the way back in Bible school when I was at Mount Zion in Pennsylvania. I had forgotten about this prayer. Um, when I ended up in Bible school, it was very abrupt for me. Um, I had no plan to be in ministry. I didn't want to be in ministry. Uh, ministry was not cool. I'm just being honest, I wanted to be cool. And pastors, they are not cool. They, 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 they play golf, they wear pleated front dockers, like they just, they, and if you wear all that, it's all good. You're not cool, but God loves you. <laughs> but it wasn't for me. I didn't want to do it. And I knew what ministry was. I had friends who were in the ministry and they were missionaries and I had pastor friends and, and people don't know this. I'm going to give you a little bit of just a, a sneak peek. Greg knows this. He, he pastored for some time, but I'll, I'll tell you what pastoring really is. You want to know what pastoring is? Pastoring is just refereeing. It's just trying to keep everybody in the respective corners. Just don't, don't punch him. Just wait. Love him. Love him. Love. Love. No, no, no. Don't go after him. I know he hurt you. Just, just be kind. Just be kind. Pray through this. Oh, you're going to leave the church? Oh, let me go find you. What's going on? What's happening? What's a, okay, wait. That's, that's really, that's what pastoring is. And I'm not upset by that. It's just conflict resolution. That's what you do 90% of your job. It's exhausting. It's tiring. It's nothing I wanted to do. I didn't want to do any of this stuff. And you have to understand the way that I ended up in Bible school, it wasn't progressive. It wasn't like God was stripping me of my old life little by little. We're like, okay, now he stripped me of my photography and I wasn't going to be a photographer. Or now he moved me out of New York and I've lived a, a few years somewhere else. Or, or now he's taking these friends away or whatever. No, no, no. It was literally like one day I'm in New York and I'm hip and cool and everything is great. The next day I'm literally sitting on a mountainside on a hill with a bunch of cattle just up in the middle of nowhere at a bike. Bible school that didn't allow you to have any electronics to be able to communicate with anybody. They didn't allow you to date. They didn't allow you to leave the property. You couldn't even have a car. You had to wear a dress shirt and pants everywhere you went. You had to shave every single day. I mean, it was a cult if God wasn't in the midst of it. <laughs> Thank God the presence of God was there because it was weird. <laughs> and here I am and I'm trying to make this adjustment. And here's the reality. There was no gifting back then. I wasn't like getting up and preaching to Cal saying, man, I got the gift to be able to preach or I could do, I knew nothing of what my gifts were. I didn't even know the whole Bible yet. And I'm thinking in my mind, God had brought me on this hillside. He brought me on this school just to take everything away from me and then dump me out after three years with no plan for my future. That's what I felt like. And I remember I suppressed it for so long. And then one day I went out in the fields and I'll never forget the prayer. This is what I prayed. I said, God, I hate you. I hate you. How dare you do this? 
And then I said this, and I'll be, I'll be completely honest. I said, I'd rather go to hell and live in eternity and damnation than ever see you face to face. If this is who you are, I want nothing to do with you. And I'll never forget the moment that I said that the fear came over me. Oh my gosh, what did I just say? What, I was pushed to the point that finally what was in my heart came out of my lips. And I said, what in the world? And I was so scared. I was so frightened. And the Holy Spirit came down on me in that field. And I felt the love and the peace of God like I can't even describe it to you. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, Michael, you're shocked by what just came out of your heart, but that was always in you. At the core of who you are, you hate me. You don't trust me. You don't believe that I got a plan that I'm going to bring you through for three years and I'm going to do something in your life that will be so unimaginable. You don't believe any of this. You think I'm a tyrant. You don't think I'm a loving father. That is what lives inside of you. That's the core of who you are. And then I heard this, and even though that's who you are, I still love you. And I'll never leave you. And I'll never forsake you. I've died for you and I've committed my whole existence to bring you through. And I have plans far beyond your understanding. I got plans that you have no idea about that when you come into eternity one day, the angels are going to be shouting saying, that was amazing. You have no clue of what I'm doing through your life. And I love you and I'll never leave you even when you fail, even when the anger comes out, even when you take off the mask and you see all of who you are. I am utterly and fully committed to you. And when I heard that, when I experienced that, the security that came over me, this place of being like, I show God everything and he still loves me. And when I experienced the love and I experienced that gospel of peace that came over my heart of hatred to God, this joy started coming into my step. This lightness started filling my spirit. I didn't have a problem reading the word every day. I didn't have a problem praying like everybody else was having a problem. I was rising above those duties because of the joy, the spiritual athleticism that came through that revelation. See, Springs Church, you need to take the gospel, you need to use it on your anger, and you need to see true joy begin to grow powerfully in your life. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website springs.church.